We are beginning a, uh, a, a new series called Basics or Gospel Basics. Uh, anytime, um, anytime things go wrong, things go astray, we need to return to the fundamentals. And so as a church, we have always been uh, gathered around three uh, priorities. And those priorities are the gospel, Jesus, community, and mission. And we are continually going to circle back around and make those the main thing uh, in the life of our church. So this morning, what I want to do is just kind of set up a 30,000-foot flyover uh, for uh, why the gospel is central. Why, why is the good news of Jesus really good news? And why, when we go to the scriptures, should we be looking to see them foreshadowing and affirming the reality of Jesus Christ, who has been crucified, who has lived perfectly in our place, been crucified for our sins, has been raised from the dead for our justification and to prove that he is who he says he is, and then who has ascended uh, to rule and to reign at the right hand of the Father, overseeing all things until uh, he should return again. So this morning, uh, this I, I want this idea that Jesus is the sum and the center uh, to really be on uh, our minds this morning. Jesus is the sum of our faith, and he is the center of our faith. Um, we're going to be in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verses 13 through 49. So it's on pages uh, 831 and 832 in the Black Bibles around the room. If you brought your own Bible, and I hope you did, I hope you will continue or begin uh, to bring your physical Bibles and to interact with those and to, and to let the tactile, uh, ancient, enduring Word of God sit in your hands and let your eyes gaze on its pages. I want you to interact with the Scripture. If you don't have your Bible or a black Bible uh, convenient to you this morning, grab an app on your phone and pull up Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 49. Again, page 831 or 832 in the black Bibles. So here's kind of a, a big idea that I'm going to start with this morning. It is incredibly easy to miss the hero of the story when we are reading the Bible, composed of 40 different authors, 66 books written in three languages on three continents over the span of approximately 1,500 years. It can be really difficult, especially for those who are new to faith in Christ, new to the scriptures, to approach this ancient text and to know what to do with it. It's incredibly easy for us to read the Bible uh, for principles and for practices to figure out how we are supposed to live in this world and yet miss the hero of the story. Notice how those closest to Jesus, his disciples, they were prone to missing him in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. So Luke chapter 24, 13 through 30, or 13 through 53. I'm just going to give some running commentary on this for a little bit, and then we'll pick up and we'll dialogue a bit together this morning as a church too. I'll have some questions that I just want some feedback on. So this is post-resurrection. Jesus has just risen from the dead. Look up at 24, uh, uh, 24, verse 10. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, they told these things to the apostles. So they went to the tomb. They found it empty. They had an encounter with some angelic beings. They run back in delight and surprise and fear and awe. They tell it to the disciples. And what is the, what is the apostles, what are their responses to them? These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. They wrote them off. But Peter, something in him, you know, 
our guy Peter, he gets up and he just rallies to the tomb and he stoops in and he looks in and he sees these linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had, at what had happened. Now, that very day, meaning Sunday, the Sunday of the resurrection, two of these disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So Jesus was crucified on Friday, put in the tomb that same day, in the grave all day Saturday, and out of the grave on Sunday. And now on Sunday, they are walking down to Emmaus. And while they're talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, Jesus himself, Luke tells us, drew near to them and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We don't know why this is. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stand still in this moment. Just imagine the grief. Imagine they're perplexed. They, st they stand still. Luke tells us they were looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these last days? And Jesus says to them, What things? Think about that for just a moment. Like, he's creating space for them to just express their grief. To just tell them what they're feeling. Tell them what they've experienced. To recount who Jesus is in their eyes. And they said to, they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet. He was mighty in deed. He was mighty in word. His teaching had authority. And, and, he, was, and he was mighty in deed and word before God and before all the people. And then he sets God and all the people in contrast to the rulers and the Pharisees. Our chief priests, our rulers, our rulers delivered Jesus up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, listen, here's their hope, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yeah, and beside all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And so some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said. But Jesus they didn't see. So the story had not yet been confirmed. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart. Remember, they don't, they don't understand that this is the risen Christ. This is just a stranger on this road to a city called Emmaus. O foolish ones, and slow, to heart, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Where have they spoken it? In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, meaning the first five books of your Old Testament, the Torah, and then all of the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, which would include the, the wisdom literature as well, the whole Hebrew Bible, all of the things concerning himself. So he just begins to unpack for them out of the Old Testament how the Messiah was pointed to, how the Messiah should come, how the Messiah would suffer, and how the Messiah would enter into his glory. And so they draw near to the village to which they were going. He, Jesus, acted as if he were going farther. He's just he's constantly messing with people. But they urge him strongly, saying, 
stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So there in the afternoon hours, nighttime is coming. So he went in to stay with them. Now, when he was at table, when they were beginning to share a meal together, he took the bread of the, of, of the meal and he blessed it. He prayed and he broke it and he gave it to them. And there was something about the way that he did this. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They recognized that Messiah, that this, this man unpacking all of the scriptures concerning the things about the Messiah was Jesus himself. And then <laughs> what does he do? He vanishes from their sight. Just gone. It's hard for us to picture this and imagine this. They said to each other, did not our hearts, our hearts burn within us? This, the Christian standard Bible, I think, says blaze within us. Well, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures, and they rose that same hour. So it's nighttime. It's evening. They rose that same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem, where the rest of the disciples and apostles are, at night. They found the eleven. There weren't twelve there because Judas had uh, gone off and taken his own life. He had not yet, his replacement had not yet been appointed. And those who were with them, they found them all gathered together. So this is a company of about 120 disciples. And these guys, and, and this whole company were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and Simon Peter has seen him. Now it's confirmed, Simon has actually seen him. And then these two disciples, one of them named Cleopas, told the rest of this company what had happened on the road and how Jesus was known to them in the breaking of bread. And as they're all in Jerusalem talking about these things, marveling, Jesus himself comes and appears to them in this room. Imagine this moment. And the first things out of his mouth, peace to you. The first response in their heart, ah, fear. Fear and amazement. They were frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. They were startled. Just imagine this moment. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. You can't touch a ghost. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still, I love this phrase, disbelieved for joy. Can you believe this? I can't. This is crazy to me. They disbelieved for joy. And they were marveling. He said to them, do you guys have anything here to eat? Remember, he left these two disciples in Emmaus right as they were breaking bread together. He's hungry. He's human. He's man. Resurrected, but still human. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. Some texts say also some honeycomb. And he took it and he ate it before them. So they watched him eat. Then he said to them, these are my words. Now my words while I, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in, this should sound familiar, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the Psalms would just signify the whole of the, the, the wisdom literature, that all of these things written about me must be fulfilled. And then what did he do? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And what? That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from here, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city, in Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power, 
from on high. According to Jesus, what is the essence of the whole Bible? I'm asking you the question. According to Jesus, what is the essence of the whole Bible? What is the whole storyline of the Bible about? Be bold. Redemption? Jesus. Thank you. As we read this account, the redemptive work of Jesus, as we read this account, we ask what the Bible is about. Is the Bible primarily about Jesus or is it primarily about us? The storyline of the scriptures are telling the story of God's redemptive work in human history, culminating in this being done ultimately through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So as we read our Bibles, as we read the Old Testament, we need to continually be asking, is this pointing me to the Messiah? Because what is very easy for us to do, especially when we approach the Old Testament or when we approach uh, commands in the New Testament, is we can, we can come to the Scriptures simply for morality, for principles to help me to live a better life or to help me get out of a bind, whatever it might be. We can come to the Scriptures looking to moralize them. Think about the story of Jonah in your Old Testament, Jonah and the big fish. Many of us have heard the story of Jonah and the whale. The Bible doesn't actually say it was a whale. He just says that this was a big fish. Jonah was a prophet in, uh, in the 8th century B.C., and, and Jonah, uh, had the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Many of you are probably familiar with the story. The word of the Lord came to, the, to, came to Jonah, and God told Jonah, a prophet of Israel, to go to a Gentile city, a non-Israelite city called Nineveh, and to proclaim repentance to this city. It tells us at the end of Jonah in chapter 4 that it, this city was, the population was somewhere around 120,000 people. So it was a very large, ancient city. First chapter of Jonah Jonah gets this word, go and preach repentance, go and tell them to repent. Jonah goes down, he finds a ship, he doesn't go to Nineveh, he goes in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And he finds himself in, 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 on a ship, going to a place called Tarshish, and a great tempest, as the ESV says it, a great storm arose, and all of the people on this ship were uh, religious in some nature, and they began to call out to their gods to deliver them to no avail. Jonah was asleep in the belly of this ship. They realize this. They go down. They find him. They say, is this because of you that this storm come upon us? He says, essentially, yes, I'm running from the Lord. Uh, I, I worship the Hebrew God. And they, he, they ask him, what are we supposed to do now? Uh, he says, throw me overboard and this will, uh, like, let me go, cast me off of this ship and that will satisfy uh, my God and the storm will cease. And so they do that. The storm does cease and Jonah sinks. He's swallowed by a great fish. That, that The words of this book, Jonah, in our Old Testament, tell, tell us that, that God appointed this fish, swallows him. He's in the belly of this whale for approximately, this fish for approximately uh, three days, probably sloshing around in there. Uh, he is deeply sorrowful and grieved by what he has done. He prays, calls out to the Lord. The Lord delivers him. This fish literally vomits him out onto dry land. Jonah makes his way to Nineveh. He proclaims repentance. The people begin to repent. They begin to worship the Hebrew God. This news gets to the king. Or, yes, the king of Nineveh. He issues an edict in this community uh, that all people should repent and should seek this God. The whole city does. Jonah is very upset about that. 
He does not like these people. He does not love these people. He does not personally want to see this happen. And he goes off on a hillside to watch the city and grumble. And that's kind of where the story ends. Now, if we're coming to Jonah, because we believe that Jonah is about us teaching us how we are to relate to God, we're looking for the moral of the story. What is the moral of Jonah if we're coming to it with that approach? What might be some of the morals of Jonah? You could, you could deduce numerous things. What do you have? What do you think? Obey God. Obey God. Yep. Don't run from him. What else? If you're coming to teach a lesson on this, to teach some principles for godly living, what might you, what might you draw out of Jonah? Okay. Yep. Don't be stony-hearted towards people you don't like. Love your brothers, love your brother. Yep, obey God, listen to God. There are a few different uh, things that we could take out of this story. But consider, what if the real story of Jonah is foreshadowing the coming Messiah? What if every story that we read in the Bible points to God as the hero? The humans in the story are supporting caste, but the hero of every story in the scriptures is actually God himself showing humanity, showing us how he is working in his world. He is always the hero. God was at work in Adam and Eve's struggle through their disobedience, giving them promise, giving them assurance that one was coming through their seed who would deliver the world from their sins. God was present in Abraham and Sarah's struggle, giving them promise, promising Abraham that through his lineage that this Messiah would come. He was present in Isaac's struggles, Jacob's struggles, David's, Bathsheba's, Ruth's, Naomi's, Jonah's, Job's, Nehemiah's, the New Testament, Peter's, Martha and Mary's struggles, Paul's struggles. If the Bible is actually bringing us news of the consistent grace and the constant transforming work of God in those living and struggling in a fallen world, then real fuel begins to flow into our tank. It's easy for us to believe and to say that the Bible is all about Jesus, but it is another thing for us to read the scriptures, to believe, to live, and to preach, to live our lives according to this being true. The Bible is not about us. It's not about you and I. The ultimate hero in every story of the scriptures is God himself. Now, on this point, Jesus will get even more direct as he's tangling with the Pharisees. In John chapter 5, verses, uh, John chapter 5, verses 39 uh, and 40, I'll start right above that. He's tangling with the Pharisees here. The Pharisees are the religious rulers here. They're opposing Jesus. They're the ones who ultimately cried out for his crucifixion. He says, The Father who sent me, in verse 37 of John 5, has himself borne witness about me, and his voice you've never heard. They've been studying the Hebrew Bible their entire lives. They are professional Bible readers, professional Bible obeyers. Jesus says, the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. You, his voice you have never heard. His form you haven't seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you don't believe the one he has sent, Jesus. 
And Jesus will go on and he'll put a cap on it like this. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures you've got eternal life. If you can just master the scriptures, then that's going to be the key that unlocks your wholeness. You think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that point you to me. It's they that bear witness about me. Yet, Jesus indicts them, yet you refuse to come to see me that you may have life. What's the distinction that Jesus is making here? What's he saying that we do wrong when we read our Bibles? We miss him. We miss the hero of the story. It's easy for us to see biblical principles of living as the means of our deliverance rather than worshiping the author of these principles and thanking him for the gift of his wisdom, the gift of his guidance for his overseeing sovereign hand in the world. The gospel is a word that means good news. It's a Greek word, and it's a word that we use a lot around here. Now, you know this. Anytime we use words a lot, they can tend to be diluted of their meaning. They kind of move into the junk drawer in our house a bit. It's just the catch-all for everything. Now, gospel is a word that we use often, which means that we need to continually come back and, and make sure that its definition is clear. This is what I mean when I am using the word gospel. And this is what I believe that we as a church family should mean when we are using this word, this phrase, the gospel, the good news. It's the objective news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. It's objective, it's historical of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done for us. It is not about what we are supposed to be doing for him. The gospel is not about what we are supposed to be doing. There are implications that show us what we are supposed to do for him that come out of the gospel, but the gospel is the news of who Jesus is and what he has done. Um, the solar system was discovered by Copernicus in the 16th century. Before uh, Copernicus really put forward this idea of the solar system, um, the, the majority of the known world believed that the earth was the center of our universe. And so they oriented all of the orbits of, of the, the, the planets and of the stars around the earth. But it created incredible confusion. And they began to draw out these detailed maps where earth was the center of the universe. And in order to make sense of it, there were like Mars, for instance, orbited around the earth and then went prograde and retrograde and then went around again and did this little ribbon thing. And they had to do all of these little loop-de-loos to, to make sense of the whole planetary system orbiting around the earth. But when Copernicus discovered that it was actually the sun that the earth and all of the other planets orbit around, it changed everything in the known world, and he was hated for it. It upset power structures. It upset authority structures completely. Now, the gospel is similar when Jesus Christ moves into the center of our affections, the center of our life, the center of our hopes. We see him as the one who is the deliverer, not exterior things. It's similar in that everything begins to make sense. When the sun, when we understood the sun was the center of our universe, then this planetary orbits made sense. When the sun, Jesus Christ, is the center of our personal universes and our collective universe, things begin to fall into place. If you and I were created for life and for relational presence with God, it makes sense that God should occupy the center, does it not? 
if we were created by a relational God for relationship with him, it makes total sense that he should occupy that center, that he should be the sum of our worldview and he should be the center of our worldview. So if we have various relationships in place, various circumstances in place, things are going well in our life, but God does not occupy that center, a human life, however noble, is operating out of orbit. So I want to ask you a question. I want, I want some uh, honesty as much as, you're, as much as you're willing. In your experience of Christianity, in your experience of life in the church, what things have tended to occupy the center other than God himself, rather than God himself? Talented people occupying the center. So this might be a big magnetic personality. It might be like pastor is central. Somebody else said people. Okay, doctrines, yep, what we believe, if we can just get, if we're like doctrinal neatniks, if we can just get all of this stuff just precise, we know how to articulate it, then we're safe because our doctrine is straight, but you're not justified by your doctrine. What else? Okay, works, yep, they can be the center. We just got to serve, we got to keep going at all costs. We got to keep going, keep going, keep going. What other things? Okay? Self-centeredness. Just a personal aim for getting something out of the life of the church. For me, this is about me. You become the center. Where does that leave you? Like, where, where, if you're the center, where does that leave you? Okay. Salvation now is resting on your shoulders. If doctrine is the center, where does that leave you? Put me on the spot. Yeah, you're like the Pharisees, you're superior. Or you just got to keep going, keep, keep, keep going, keep going. There's no rest because there's always more doctrine to collate. There's always more doctrine to know. You can't exhaust the depth of the, of the scriptures. If a, if a talented person is at the center, go ahead. You can't have a relationship with a doctrine. It's profound. But the doctrine is meant to tell you something of the one who oversees all things to show us his goodness, to show us what he's like. If a talented person is at the center, where does that leave a church? Following after man. When that person fails, where does that leave you? Scattered, lost, heartbroken, despairing. We can put all kinds of things at the center and so a question for reflection is what, is, what is maybe residing in the center for you other than Jesus Christ right now? It can be causes. It can be political agendas. It can be Bible studies. Forms of church. Answered prayer can be at the center. I'm not experiencing God. I don't believe in him anymore because he doesn't answer my prayers. We often, I think we have a tendency... And I see this in my own life in a major way. Like, we often think of the next Christian thing that we're doing um, in, in, a, in a vein like this. We wouldn't really say it is the center, but we'll, we'll often go to studies or look to communities or look to a new devotion or look to a new event or a conference or something because we think that that thing will provide the key, provide the missing link 
to give us and to gratify us what we're seeking. But what we often miss is that these are good things. We don't just throw them out. They're good things, but they need to be put in proper order. These things are vehicles meant to take us to the one. They're meant to help us to see and to experience life with our king. That's what these things exist for. Now, the meaning of the gospel. The gospel, it means good news. It's this objective, historical announcement of who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. Now, what we do in service to God, it's not the gospel. Say that. What I do in service to God is not the gospel. All God has done for us in Christ is the gospel. What we do for him is response. It's implication of. Christians, we took, this, um, we took this word gospel and we reappropriated it from Greek. The Romans used it and it was a term that was applied to any historical event of such significance that it promised or it changed the course of history for those to whom it was proclaimed. So the birth of Caesar was seen as gospel. The birth of Caesar was seen as good news because the birth of Caesar ushered in this new era of peace and prosperity for all who looked to him. Christians reassigned gospel and kind of bound up Jesus' perfection, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and they reappropriated this word and essentially stole it from Roman culture and Roman language. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a preacher of late uh, in the UK, he used to tell this story of kings who would go to war. And when kings, when ancient kings would go to war, if they went out into the outlying provinces or, their, or, or they met their opponents, their enemies on the battlefield, if the enemies overtook their armies and if these kings were defeated in retreat, then what these kings would do is they would send generals and they would send military officials out into the, into the countryside of their own people to prepare them for war and to train them and to announce to them that the enemy is coming. It's now up to you to take care of yourselves, so you must gather and fight if you are to live. But if these ancient kings would go out and they would win, they wouldn't send generals and commanders into the countryside of their own people. They would send heralds. They would send messengers. Our modern language, they would send evangelists out into the provinces and into the communities. And what these messengers would announce is, the king has secured victory for you. Peace and prosperity is yours. Praise be to the king. There is nothing left for you to do now but two things. To tell, to proclaim, to, to spread the news, and to celebrate it to rest in it, to enjoy what the, what the king has secured for you. Every religion sends generals, but Christianity sends messengers. Every religion sends generals saying, if you are going to get to God, you must do the work yourself. Christianity sends messengers telling you that God has done the work for you himself. That is incredibly good news. The hero, he delivers for us more than forgiveness too. He also delivers wholeness to us. He doesn't just deliver us forgiveness, but he also delivers us wholeness. And to be clear, this, our wholeness, our forgiveness, it's not even his first aim. His glory and his renown in the world is his first aim. 
because there is no presence, there is no being in all of creation ever who is more ultimate, more supreme than he is. His first goal is that he would be seen by creation as he is. And he delivers to humanity who he has created forgiveness for our trespasses and our debt against him, but also not just forgiveness, wholeness. Often when we think about the good news of Jesus, what we think of is forgiveness of sins. And that is true. That's what Jesus has done for us. He has brought to us forgiveness of our sins. He has pardoned us. Have you ever overdrawn your bank account? What happens when you overdraw your bank account? Those bankers give you a penalty, right? And it's like 29 or 39 bucks or something like that. $5 coffee, it's now 44 bucks. You're welcome. Don't do it again. Now, what happens if you continue to do that over and over and over and over and over again? They continue to penalize you. They continue, you already don't have any cash whatsoever, and they continue to charge you more. And you just see yourself sinking into the hole. But imagine that someone comes along and pays all of that debt off. What if you've racked up a hundred overdraft fees? But somebody comes along and they pay that debt for you. That's fantastic, and we're grateful, right? But what do we still have to do? We still got to make sure that we don't go back to that place. If we're still using a broken system, we've got to continue to earn. We've got to continue to pay off debt. We've got to continue to change the way that we are using our money. If the system isn't fixed, we will find ourselves right back where we began again, in debt. But in the gospel, God gives us forgiveness, but he also credits our account with his righteousness. And he doesn't just credit our account, bring it past even up into positive status, but he doesn't do that only. He also begins to transform our way of life and our systems. He makes our entire life completely unrecognizable. This is why the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We are completely new creations. So God goes far further than forgiveness only. He credits our account with Jesus' riches, which means that our sin is not only forgiven, but Jesus' righteousness, his perfection. It's applied by God to every person who entrusts themselves in faith to Jesus. And so the gospel continues, the good news of Jesus continues to illustrate for you and I that we are more sinful than we can imagine, which means you are worse than you think you are. It's worse than you think it is when you really start to dive down into the inner workings and motives of your heart. The debt that we owe is actually worse than we estimate it to be. The gospel proclaims that. And it also, on the back end of that, proclaims that we are far more loved and far more accepted than we could ever, ever imagine. We're worse than we think we are and far more loved and pursued than we ever dared hope. Do you remember Scrooge McDuck? Anybody remember Scrooge McDuck? When Scrooge McDuck would get, maybe I'm dating myself, Scrooge McDuck, when he'd get all spun out, what would he do? He'd go into his vault of riches. He was 
filthy rich. He would go in and he'd just be like up on this platform and you'd see him in his little old school swimsuit and he'd give a little wiggle and he would dive and you would just see him like swimming and frolicking in his riches. That's where Scrooge McDuck would go in order to comfort himself when things went awry. That's the invitation that you and I have. That's the invitation that you and I have. All that the Father has is offered to you and I in Christ. Imagine comforting yourself with the riches of Jesus' kingdom, the riches of his acceptance. You're far worse than you think you are, and he doesn't just accept you and pass you, but he calls out to you and pursues you in order that he will have you because he loves you, he knows you, and he wants you. He's granting us the power to change. He's granted us this riches of his grand debt-forgiving love. Like If you and I believe this to our core, if we believed that that was actually true, not just lip service, but like our way of life told the story that it was true, what would be showing up in your life? What would be showing up in your life? I'm asking you the question. If that were, if that were true for you, what might start, if you believed it, at the core of who you were, what would start showing up? Or what is showing up? Say that again. Grace. Okay? You recognize how much you've received. It starts to show up in your life, and then it starts to be extended to others. Enemies. What else? What starts showing up in your life? Peace. I think I heard that from two people. What else? Joy, comfort, fruit of the Spirit, yep. A reflection on the Father instead of yourself. So now everything isn't about you, but it becomes about Him. Amen. Do the things that we've just named describe you? Be honest. We're mixed bags too, right? So this is that point where we all start to cower in guilt and shame. That's not what the gospel comes to bring us. Gospel comes to bring us transformation and deliverance and joy and life and freedom and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ because we look to Him as our deliverer. We look to Him as our justifier, not our own performance, not our own works, not our own getting it all together, tying our doctrine in a nice, tidy little bow. These things are important. I'm not looking down on them. They're not our justifiers. Not our justifiers. Just like there are unevangelized people groups out there in the world, there are vast unevangelized territories of our own hearts where this good news needs to come to bear and start to do its work. And as your pastor, this is doing its work in my heart and will continue until the day I die. And it's the same for all who are disciples and apprenticing ourselves to the real Jesus. And so when the go and do, when all the Christian stuff comes before he went and did, we fall apart. And we live under an incredible weight that we were not meant to carry. And we need to learn as the, as the church to proclaim this good news, to rehearse it. I'm going to use that word, to rehearse good news. How do you memorize something? You rehearse it so that it become, it just starts to flow out of you. As we rehearse the good news for ourselves, we grow in our ability to rehearse the good news for other people. And so rather than telling other people what they need to do and what needs to occur, then we can begin to give good news of God's gracious and free acceptance to us in Jesus Christ, which has an amazing way of motivating change. It's through his work in us that change does come and obedience does come. 
Frederick Buckner said it like this, a crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. And to entrust, so that we're clear, to entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ is not a work. It's simply to open our hands and to receive the gift of grace through the life of his son that he is offering to us. God himself is both king and messenger who comes declaring that peace and prosperity have been secured and that all that is left for us to do is to receive this news, to celebrate, and to tell and show it. Timothy Keller uh, gives some helpful distinctions on the gospel versus religion. I just want to give you three as I close. The gospel... It's news about what Jesus has done for our acceptance, but religion gives instructions about what we must do for God. The gospel elicits joy and gratitude, but religion elicits fear and stress. The gospel sends messengers who spread the good news that our lives are now safe. Why? Because of King Jesus' victory. Religion sends commanders who tell people they must fight for themselves if they want to save their lives. The Christian life does not begin, does not start with love God and love others. The first and daily move of following Jesus is to receive God's unearned love. That's the first move. To receive his love, which has been poured out on us before we ever moved in response to him. And so, would you, church, consider this your act of grateful, joy-filled obedience to receive the love of the Father, to receive the love of the Son, to receive the love of the Spirit, who calls out to you and I to believe, and who at this very moment is working within you. So here's what I want you to wrestle with. Are you willing to receive His love, His acceptance, based on nothing you can do? Based on nothing you can perform? It's not on your performance in any way. That actually, as a standard, gets totally removed from the picture. Are you willing to receive his love based on nothing that you can do? This is where gospel movement starts in the human heart. Next week, we'll move into gospel power. And it's power over our, pre- over our past that is freeing us, that has freed us from the penalty of our sin. So we'll talk about sin. We'll talk about the gospel power in our present, giving us power for today. And then on week three after that, we'll talk about the gospel, gospel's power for our future, giving us hope. And then we'll just continue to unpack where we're headed with gospel basics. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning with grateful hearts. We come to you this morning. Huh? It's dawning on us. Long-time Christians, brand-new Christians, not yet Christians, it's dawning on us that you come and to you come and pursue us at great cost to yourself, not based on anything that we can do. It's dawning on us in a fresh way that our work is to receive you. Our work is to open our lives to you. Our work is to marvel in the scriptures at your continuous, transforming, scandalous, at times, work of redemption over the course, the entire course of human history. And so we marvel at you this morning. Our act of worship is to marvel. It's to humble ourselves. It's to step off of the treadmill and to entrust ourselves to you. Move in our hearts. Make yourself real and known to us as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.